0: You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. In this episode we're going to visit the Portland Armory or as it was originally known the First Regiment Armory Annex. For the past several years it's been the home of Portland's center stage the largest theatre company in Portland, and among the top 20 regional theatres in the country. Established in 1998 as a branch of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the company became independent in 1994. An estimated 150,000 visitors attend the Armory annually to enjoy a mix of classical, contemporary, and world premiere productions. But this building's history is a long and fairly eclectic one, going back actually over 125 years. The Portland Armory's opening came amidst a wave of armory building around the state and the nation. In 1891, the Oregon Legislature passed a law calling for armories to be built in all towns of more than 10,000 people. And the impetus for that was a wave of anti-Chinese violence in the 1880s. Chinese communities across much of the American West, many of whom had helped build the first transcontinental railroad, were harassed, attacked, or expelled in part as a result of labor disputes that involved the use of Chinese workers as strikebreakers. When the armory complex was completed in 1891, the original wing contained officers' quarters, a dining room, and a ballroom, while this annex building, which remains today, was used for military drills, as a firing range, as well as a kind of event hall. It's kind of a crazy combination, actually, and I hope none of these events overlapped, like a concert that accidentally ran long into firing range time. Designed by Portland architecture firm McCaw & Martin, the armory is a rare example of what's called the castellated architecture style, with its fortress-like architecture of ashlar stone and brick. Its arched entrance is flanked by turrets above, and its crenellated parapets are punctuated with vertical slots for firing guns— I mean, did they really think a medieval fortress was necessary on the eve of the 20th century? The interior of the building was built as one huge column-free open space, allowing the military drills it was designed for. Much of that open volume is gone now that this theater occupies the building, but the gorgeous bowstring trusses of the roof are still visible in the multi-story atrium-like lobby. This first regiment that's referred to in the building's original name represented an infantry regiment commanded by Colonel C.F. Beebe of Portland. They and other state regiments eventually morphed into the Oregon National Guard, which saw its first action in 1898 with the Spanish American War, participating in the invasion of Manila. For its first 25 years or so, the armory was actually the city's principal auditorium and concert hall. In 1897, Audiences were given their first glimpse of moving picture technology through a technology called the electrograph, a forerunner of the movie camera. Concerts were also held there, such as a 1902 performance by opera singer Mary Garden. She was said to be the mistress, if you can believe it, of famed French composer Claude Debussy. And John Philip Souza, who composed many of America's best-known patriotic marches, played himself at the Armory with his marching band three different times. In 1911, the Armory welcomed three American presidents. First, there was the current occupant of the Oval Office, William Howard Taft. Then later that year, appeared on stage the man Taft succeeded, former President Theodore Roosevelt. And finally, there was a speech by then-New Jersey Governor Woodrow Wilson, who would defeat both Taft and Roosevelt a year later in the three-way presidential election of 1912. By the 1920s, though, the Armory had gone largely dormant. In 1928, a fire marshal's report determined that the armory and the annex were both unsafe, requiring either investment or a sale of the property. Yet over the next four decades, neither happened. Finally, though, the Blitz-Weinhart Brewery purchased the armory block in 1968 and started storing kegs of beer there. Even as Powell's books next door became a mecca, the area around the armory languished well through the 1980s and into the 90s. But then the neighborhood began to transform into the chic Pearl District. Warehouses all over the neighborhood were being renovated into lofts and condos. The old beer brewery itself was transformed into offices and apartments and shops, known as the brewery blocks. And with that momentum, in 2007 came a complete renovation of the armory itself. It became the first historic building in the United States to earn a top-level platinum lead rating from the U.S. Green Building Council for its sustainable design. And since then, it has been one of the cultural landmarks of Central City, Portland. I actually have seen a number of plays there over the years. I think maybe the most recent one was a two-play cycle based on Astoria and its history. Today we have first an interview with architects Stephen Domries and Craig Mendenhall from the Portland firm GBD Architects, which led the amazing transformation of this decaying 19th-century drill hall into a state-of-the-art 20th-century theater and performance space. They had to balance historic preservation needs with first-rate sustainable design principles. And then in the second interview, we're going to talk with Marissa Wolfe, the Artistic Director of Portland Center Stage, about how great theater makes the Armory a melting pot of stories and ideas. After all, if the Armory was originally about creating a military presence in Portland, today it's a fortress of culture. Stephen Domries is a director emeritus with GBD Architects, and he first joined the firm in 1973. He studied architecture at the University of Oregon and at New York's Cooper Union, just uh, down the street, by the way, from my alma mater, NYU, and uh, among the projects he's worked on besides the Armory are the Center for Health and Healing at OHSU, as well as the Casey Eye Institute at OHSU, uh, the Porsche Cars North American Headquarters in Reno, and the Casey Condominiums in Portland. And uh, we've also got today here Craig Mendenhall. He's an associate principal with GBD Architects and has been with the firm since 2002. He's also a duck, graduated from the University of Oregon, and his project experience includes the Vestas headquarters, as well as the unbuilt but quite impressive Oregon Sustainability Center in Portland, as well as hotels in Long Beach and Los Angeles, and a whole bunch more. Both of these architects have designed a lot of sustainable buildings or been part of a team that has. And uh, GBD at one point a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken, had designed the most square footage of any firm in America that had received a a lead rating from the U.S. Green Building Council, kind of the good housekeeping seal of approval for sustainable buildings in the United States, or at least it has been. So, Stephen Craig, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Regarding the armory, I'd first like to ask you, about the armory's original style, and and uh, uh, people can't see me smiling when I say this, but I but I say it with kind of a smile on my face because uh, I believe the armory is is uh, known as I guess a, a castellated architecture style, and it's got this sort of fortress-like structure. And I know it's an old building; it dates to the. Late nineteenth century, but it's not medieval. <laughs> and yet it kind of looks medieval to me a little bit. And so uh, that's part of what I love about it. this kind of, you know, fortress there. I, I feel like there should be archers, you know, uh, shooting bows and arrows or something on it.
1: I think I could speak for both Steve and myself and say that we're by no means are the two of us history buffs in that regard. Uh-huh. but aesthetically, as designers, we thought that, wow, what a great opportunity uh-huh. you know to work on such a cool looking building. I mean, even though given when we first saw the building or first started working on the building, it was all white, right? Inside and out, painted mm-hmm. stark white. Mm-hmm. So we, mm-hmm. some of that was a little bit unknown, you know, what was to be discovered.
2: But I think from from our perspective, it's a fortress. Yeah. And if you look at a architectural style it's the fortress style of architecture and we always tried to remind chris coleman about that because he wanted to have this open and free for the public to come in at any time Mm -hmm. and we kept telling him it's a fortress
0: yeah and and a fortress (laughs) implies a lack of windows right yes (laughs) (laughs) and so you were also coming into it um you know with these you know ambitious goals uh this was a building that ended up being the first performing arts venue in the country to receive a lead rating, if I'm not mistaken, and even more impressively, the first National Register building to earn a lead rating. And so it seemed to me uh, as an observer when it was going on that it was almost like a little bit of a kind of ship in a bottle quality, you know, dealing with this historic shell and a kind of somewhat of a contemporary architectural interior inside. And so, you know, how, how did that sort of problem or approach start to come together for you?
1: I mean I would say just right off the bat, being uh, on the National Register, historic lead platinum building, you know, long long title. Um, much of that is credit to Gerd and Edelin. You know, they came in and they just had that mission day one. Yeah, you the know, sort of the their developer. I mean, I think there's a reason why it was first because it's very challenging, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of hurdles had to be had to be gone over to get to that point, but it was clear, you know, as a mission from day one that this was to be a lead, a historic lead, platinum-rated building. Mm-hmm.
0: And conceptually, did you think of the the old shell um, being something that you juxtaposed with?
1: Absolutely, I would say, you know, bringing that human scale into the design and creating that ability to go in and touch and feel, you know, that this hundred-plus-year-old building. And I mean, much of our experience in the brewery blocks prior, as mm-hmm. uh, such as our own office, uh, a in the uh, henry weinhardt's building yeah the building surrounding um, the armory you know we just knew and working through that project that there were a lot of you know what we had to do structurally to hold up the exterior walls being an unreinforced masonry building such as put shotcrete all along the interior of the building you mm-hmm. know it was unfortunate to us you know during the design, early design phases we wanted to leave that stuff exposed and make sure that everyone got to experience it so and
0: and when you say for our uh listeners who don't who aren't in the building industry, Shot Creek and
1: yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things you could do. You could reinforce with exposed steel and exposed steel frame on the interior, mm-hmm. or um, I would say, this may not be completely accurate, but saying that shotcrete is probably a less expensive option. So what shotcrete means is it's you're literally spraying concrete. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not formed or cast. It's sprayed onto the interior wall and then troweled, and it's. Um, what I'd imagine is a bit less expensive of a method to reinforce that wall. Yeah,
0: and yet it would feel kind of sacrilege to, to cover up that brick, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
2: So we tried to keep everything good and historic and exposed that was already there and that the new things that we added helped feature those things.
0: Yeah, and I feel like when you are in the building today, you do get a, a – the a sense of the brick and, and, and everything. You do feel those materials when you're on the inside. Yeah,
1: And I feel like, yeah, another big part of the design uh, strategy early on was to be very minimal. You know, we knew, you know, obviously budget had a lot to do with that, but to be very minimal in our design aesthetic, but also uh, in contrast to all of that really great historic context.
2: hmm hmm
1: and, uh, you know, I'm also interested
0: in the, in the theater aspect of it for a moment. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the decisions you came to with just regard to how to put the theater together and how to, how to make the best theater you could?
2: Well, GBD had never designed a theater, and uh, Mr. Girding came to us one Christmas holiday and said, hey, I'm going to put a theater in here. And we committed to helping him out on this as long as we'd be able to hire the best theater designer, acoustical designer, and lighting designer in the industry. So that was brought to us. Yeah. And so the theater box, which is a concrete box about two feet thick, which does provide the seismic um, support for the rest of the building, was something that was dictated by them. And Craig and I had to deal with moving and creating all of the spaces around it. You know, how did we handle that? Uh, the only change in a typical uh, Landry Bogan uh, seating and um, viewing thing was Mr. Girding wanted an extra two or three inches in each row so that he was a big guy mm-hmm. so that he could get by someone seated without them having to get
0: up. What about the notion of, of these these? Things having to, possibly being in conflict with each other, like me, uh, being mindful of of following proper historic preservation procedure and trying to meet these sustainable building requirements, and trying to do a great theater. Did did one ever kind of come in fl- conflict with the other? And what about kind of satisfying all those all those goals?
1: Yeah, I would say absolutely, and it was it happened often. And I think that so much of designing a a highly sustainable building is an economic exercise. Uh, we we were actually looking at looking putting uh, photovoltaic panels on top of the Henry condominiums next door because mm-hmm. this, this shares a full block with the Henry, and uh, it just for some reason the six hundred thousand dollar number sticks out in my mind. But it was six hundred thousand dollars more expensive to put photovoltaics on top of the Henry than to put in an access floor system on the third floor um, to supply air to all the office space up on the third floor of the building. So oh, right. and that and it was an equal trade off in lead points. And it just so happens that it's strategies like the access floor plenum, which you you walk in, you'll notice you don't see duct work in the ceiling. Yeah. You notice the big bowstring trusses across the lobby, but you don't see ducts going through them. And so it's those types of strategies yeah, that air, allow that to happen.
0: It, with an access floor, if I understand it correctly, it just makes so much more sort of physical sense in that the air is coming up from the floor at your feet instead of being yep. forced down onto you, especially if you're trying to force cool air to go in the opposite direction down instead of the way it wants uh, to go up.
1: absolutely and it is a theater you need lo- very large ducts to provide air you know with at low noise levels mm-hmm, so it's mm-hmm. uh you know we brought in that underfloor air into the main theater as well so you're delivering the air at the level of the the patron i guess sitting there watching the performance and then everything is returned high so as the air warms up you know that's where the return is happening in the ceiling so but we're not Uh, running
2: we're not running fans yeah it it
1: eliminated any need for pre-cooling a lot of times in those uh, those auditoriums they pre-cool before Mm -hmm. the audience gets there you get there and you're kind of cold at the beginning but people heat up the space well there it kind of sort of took away the need to do that which saves a lot of energy
0: oh you bet you bet and you know craig you mentioned the, the the trusses and i had meant to mention those as well. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I wondered if you kind of had any conversations during the design process about how to kind of put the spotlight on those a little bit. And in a way, like architecturally, we talked about the, the kind of medieval castle quality on the outside. But the other kind of fundamental essence of this architecture to me when we're talking about the original building is this, these beautiful roof trusses. And so oh. did you have any conversations or, or wrestling about how much of that to expose or, or, or anything like that?
1: We ended up needing the programmatic. um, We needed the program space for the mezzanine in the main lobby when you look up, and um, but there was a balancing act there because um, the National Preservation Office or Historic Preservation Office did not want that mezzanine because it blocked the view of the trusses. Mm. So there was a back and forth there in creating that what is now kind of an oculus as you look up that Mm -hmm. provides the view of the trusses, and it was sort of us saying, okay, we will sort of satisfy this view requirement. We'll put a glass top on the elevators, which provides service to the third floor, but we're gonna, uh, we're still gonna have a mezzanine around the perimeter and allow for that, the functionality of that space to happen.
2: Mm-hmm. So they required us to be able, to have them be able to see this, the cross bracing on the trusses and the trusses. The cross bracing was, was equally important.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I seem to remember they wanted a full, uh, a view of the full span of that bow truss, you yeah. know, from side to side.
2: Um, can I go back on the trusses though for a minute? Let's step back uh, before we actually um, had a Portland Center stage going into the Armory. We had a requirement to spend three million dollars and replace the roof on the building uh-huh. uh, because we had, were having an occupancy issue with the Henry, the condominium next door, mm-hmm. and so as a separate uh, first piece of work, uh, GBD did uh, had to re-roof the armory to keep the fire that would occur in there from going to the condominiums. Mm -hmm. And even in there, we had to make a lot of decisions anticipating what we were going to do with the theater inside. So I remember that I wanted uh, to have a green roof, to have grass Mm -hmm. growing on the roof. And nobody would go with me on that because (laughs) the trusses couldn't support any weight. Ah. And so we had to design, I think it was about an 11-inch thick a uh, composite section on top of those trusses that would take no additional weight uh, to keep the noise from the, elo- from the helicopters outside from coming into the theater during a performance. Oh, boy. Yeah, so it was a reverse acoustical issue. Uh, but we did that, not 100% sure we were going to have a theater but we did it anticipating the lead Platinum rating, and we couldn't get everything there we wanted either. But we also had to face the issue that there was going to be no rooftop mechanical for the most part.
1: Yeah, because, you know, obviously the barrel roof was important, you know, and the view from the outside looking up. So obviously minimal mechanical equipment. Uh, the other thing I recall on the roof was the need. I think we put in, you know, 40 to 50 skylights, and we placed them over the occupied space on the interior office. Obviously, when you talk about lead. Um, is the daylight factor in each mm-hmm. of those occupied spaces is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, because there's a f- few windows around the perimeter, those skylights were very important in getting them uh, on the roof. But then so we had to negotiate, you know, ke- how much of those can you really see from the sidewalk across the street? Yeah,
0: and the, I meant to to bring up the skylights actually too, because given the literal fortress quality, not even the fortress light quality, but the fortress quality of the exterior, that may, if you can't have windows on the outside, you gotta have skylights, right? right? You know, you gotta have some natural light. You know, not in the theater itself, necessarily, but um, you know, it just seems like the skylights were an essential ingredient experientially. You know, the natural light on that brick for the first time, actually, you know, it's pretty cool.
2: It was fun that uh, Chris Coleman was on the same page as us when we wanted to put uh, on the very top floor. We wanted to put the the rehearsal hall. In between all of the office workers so they'd have to in the coffee area big coffee area in the middle where the actors and the and the staff all had to interact on a regular basis mm-hmm. so the proscenium uh, is actually the size of that rehearsal hall mm. but we also had to the design criteria was to acoustically isolate the rehearsal hall uh, to the point um, where who was the guy that played bat boy ah a cool Portland actor who screamed really loud in the in the performance of Bad Boy. Oh, right. I uh, can't think of his name. Uh, so that he could scream and the workers could still work. Mm-hmm. So, but the skylights gave the workers, you know, <laughs> natural light right above their desk. But we had to isolate then that big block in the center from them so they could actually do their work.
0: We're talking about a building that's actually been operating, a theater that's been operating for quite a lot of years now. and And so, you know, just... I'd love to hear about any experiences you've had as a theater goer. there. Are there any cool plays that you've seen or memories that you've had um, um, spending time in the building over the years? Or have you had a chance to observe other people or talk to other people about what the Girding Theater and what the Armory mean to them?
2: So one of the fun things is this uh, was such a big part of Craig and my uh, uh, life, both work and social life, that uh, like – Craig's mentioning he likes cabaret. Well, I think I saw it seven or eight times. And you could just go in and and the stage uh, or the, the floor managers knew us, of course, and we might have dates, and we could come and sit in the back uh, in the docent's chairs, no tickets, no anything. We can watch a few parts of the performance. And, uh, and you know, we ended up making uh, friends with a lot of the actors because uh, we go out with them afterwards. Mm-hmm. But uh, – th- So those were a lot of positive experiences. The one negative experience.
1: We didn't get the Halloween costumes that we asked for.
2: That was the negative experience. Yes. So we asked Chris Coleman, "Okay, Halloween's coming. We need Halloween costumes," and he wouldn't give them to us. You wanted to, re-
0: so you wanted to raid the costume shop for your Halloween costumes.
2: Yeah, I mean, it seemed reasonable. And then, yeah. and then, some other people from the, you know, board members ended up at one Halloween event with oh, with no Halloween fair. costumes. Yeah, no fair. Yeah, well, we were not
0: happy. Okay, so what would you guys have chosen as your costumes then? Whoa, well, like a falstaff or something. I, I would some
2: like something from. From Shakespeare.
1: Yep. yep. I was some kind of Pirates of the Caribbean thing I had before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> Pirates of the
0: Caribbean, so you'd be going as a Disney ride. Right? I, I, I refuse to acknowledge the, the movie of the same name. <laughs> I'm thinking more like My Kingdom for a Horse or something yeah. like that, yeah. you know. But um, Craig and Steve, thanks very much for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thank, Thank you. you. And now a quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped make Portland possible in a way since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building? It could be Mutual Materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? It might be slim brick tile from Mutual Materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out Mutual Materials. And listen to the end of this show for a free resource you might want to check out. Marissa Wolf is the Artistic Director for Portland Center Stage at the Armory, coming on board a little under one year ago. Prior to joining the Armory, Marissa served as the Associate Artistic Director and New Works Director at Kansas City Repertory Theater for three seasons, where she also directed a number of theatrical premieres and original works, including the world premiere of Fire and Dreamland by Rinna Groff, as well as the play's off-Broadway premiere at the Public Theater in New York, a place I have been to many times and love. I'm excited about the 2019-2020 season that Marissa and her Portland Center Sage team have put together. It's a wonderfully vibrant and diverse series of plays, including everything from a bold new version of Shakespeare's Macbeth to Hamilton creator Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical In the Heights, as well as the world premiere of Redwood by Brittany K. Allen, new versions of modern classics like Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Howard's End, The Curious Incident of the Dog in Nighttime, and the riveting solo work Nine Parts of Desire, as well as exciting stuff like the music-infused Cambodian rock band and Schoolgirls or the African Mean Girls play. Marissa, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, you bet, of course. I'm a big fan of Portland Center Stage, and uh, I wondered if you could talk about the decision to accept the artistic director job and, and maybe how you saw the company uh, from afar, like its reputation. And, and, you know, we think of it as like a significant regional theater, and I'd imagine your accepting a job would be somewhat of a validation of that. But just tell me your mindset of, of like, you know, how you, how you and this job found each other.
3: Absolutely. Um, you're you're right. I think it has a major national reputation. And um, I will tell you that um, there's an amazing moment that we're in where we're having a generational shift. Mm-hmm. And so of the 75 largest regional theater companies in the country, um, about 20 of them have new artistic directors in ah. a two-year period. And mm. I am part of that uh cohort of uh, new folks coming up. So I was keeping my ear very closely to the ground. I was very excited about um, this moment of Uh transition in in the field. And when I saw that Chris Coleman was moving on to Denver, I actually leapt out of my chair and sort of gasped. And I thought, Portland, yes. (laughs) Uh Um, So I knew that I was going to go out hard for this this opportunity. Um, And what drew me Towards it was, um, I had lived on the West Coast for many years. Mm -hmm. I was aching to get back to the West Coast. Portland Center Stage at the Armory had uh, an exceptional reputation for that combination of uh, new works and sort of bolstering the 21st century canon of new American plays Mm -hmm. um, while straddling the, the world of classics and musicals as well, and I think is seen as a major flagship um, in the in the national theater movement um, and I was really excited also about jaw and about the sort of hunger that's already been built inside this community for for coming up to support new work and new voices mm-hmm. um, and I thought that is a a community and a company that I feel like I could really immerse myself inside of. Mm -hmm. And then it was an eight-month search process. Mm. Um, And so in that time, I think for all of the candidates, you begin to go deeper and deeper into the landscape of what the community is, um, what the politics of the state and and local government are. Mm -hmm. And And then you have to kind of do a lot of sleuthing about Mm. the company. You know, ask everyone you know, anyone who's ever worked on the stage. Um, And then a lot of digging. I mean, it's amazing with the internet, you know, that by my final round, I had watched, you know, a promo video for like every show in the last 10 years, you know, (laughs) just to get a sense of what's going on on stage. Uh Um, And I was... Just deeply impressed and inspired by the work that was already happening that Chris Coleman and the and the leadership before me had built.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that about being part of a, a generation of artistic directors around the country who have who have uh, been able to take the reins in the last couple of years. And it uh, I suppose it goes without saying that um, it feels like we entered kind of a new era of American history uh, a couple and a half years ago. And and um, it's not just you know post 2016 election, but of course all the, the things happening with the Me Too movement and, and so much else, um, it, it really feels maybe like um, pretty exciting that, that you're part of a kind of generation that can give new new thought to what stories, what balance of new and old stories you want to tell and that sort of thing, and and what kind of lens you want to see the world through. And and so um, it's interesting. We all want to feel like we're part of something larger than ourselves, and, mm-hmm. and so it's an interesting opportunity there. Do you end up having some conversations then with, with some of your colleagues around the country about that kind of idea?
3: I think so. I mean, it's actually really powerful. I was talking to a friend who runs um, a theater company in Minneapolis, and he was saying, you know, There's something really profound about being part of the generation of new leadership where we've come up together. Uh You know, a lot of us have been seeing and supporting each other's work across the country for for a long time. Uh And so we're already in dialogue with each other. We're already celebrating similar um, new voices together. Um, And there's a way in which we are each maybe wrestling with questions around – what does what does serving a community mean and look like to each of us now? Uh-huh. Um, you know, honoring the legacy of the regional theater movement and and why it was built and how it was built and by whom and for whom. Mm -hmm. Um, And then digging deeper into sort of the questions around civic responsibility Mm -hmm. of flagship theaters inside communities, um, as well as just the kind of wrestling with what does it feel like to be in these positions for the Mm -hmm. first time? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there is... There is a very um, large body of new artistic directors who are women mm-hmm. and new artistic directors who are people of color. Mm-hmm. And um, that that number does get smaller as you get into the largest size organizations. Mm-hmm. But if you're opening it up to all uh, companies in the last couple of years, um, the numbers are pretty robust. Mm-hmm. And so that also, it shifts the conversations and the landscape. There, there's a network that we connect into with mm-hmm. each other. And there's also, uh, um, I think, a space of... Of wrestling, uh-huh. you know, with with um, when you literally have a voice that is of a different timbre uh-huh. than your predecessors who may have been in the job, some of whom were founding artistic directors. I have friends who are, you know, coming in after someone has been there for 40 years, uh-huh. mostly men. And these are, you know, women of color are coming uh-huh. in. And so what does that mean um, for a board and community to listen to a new voice uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. and celebrate a new voice that that. Um, sounds quite different
0: yeah I suppose it's a matter of growing pains in some ways but it also is something to be excited about in that Mm -hmm. um, it means that that new talent is it it can infuse uh, the landscape and and so um, I I think of maybe my favorite record album title of all time is um, The title, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back by Public Enemy. And I love that idea of turning around, that idea of being suppressed or repressed in some way, and then being kind of unleashed on the world.
3: Yes, I love that. Uh Yes, yes. I do think um, there's something wonderful about... this moment and the opportunity. And I think the the, the word you use of being unleashed uh-huh. is an exciting one. It's uh-huh. very galvanizing. Stephanie Yabara is a, um, a new artistic director who I really admire. She came up um, through the public theater as one of the major producers uh-huh. there. And she is now running Baltimore Center Stage. Um, and she has a quote in a New York Times article with um, five different uh, new artistic directors of color. Uh-huh. And at the end of this article, she says something like... Um, When I have filled my time here at this company, I hope to leave behind me a series of open doors and shattered glass. Mm. And that feels right. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's exciting. That's what we're here to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, my uh, eyes kind of lit up when I saw that you had spent time or had some association with the public because I, yes. I had some years in New York City and in college and after, and, and I think of the public as sort of like the gold standard of, of what it is.
3: Absolutely, yes. Um, I am very lucky to have um, spent this uh, 10-week period in-house um, doing the – off Broadway premiere of Fire and Dreamland mm-hmm. by Rena Groff. Mm-hmm. Um, she's been a longtime collaborator of mine, and she's done a number of shows at the Public. Um, and it was a joy mm-hmm. to get to lift off with that play um, this time last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, interestingly, have been in that in that circle for a little while because I have actually known Oscar Eustace, the artistic director, since I was about thirteen. Oh boy! <laughs> um, and when he was at Trinity Repertory uh, Company, mm-hmm. and so he has been a major part of my life. He's uh-huh. been a major voice in my life, um, uh, a major supporter. He was a person who said when I was 18 years old and um, going off to college to you know, become a theater practitioner, uh-huh. and he said to me, if you can do anything else, you should do it. <laughs> like that he was sort of like – you know, I see you going into battle, and I'm I am I am here for that. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to support you, but I just want to say this thing, and it stuck with me mm-hmm. because um, it was important. I think to have that voice of like, it's going to be hard, kid. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then he's he's continued to be very supportive i'll say that when rina and i did the world premiere at kansas city rep he came out to see that and and to give his notes and that was a uh, an important moment because he hadn't seen my directing work before mm-hmm. so even though we had a relationship there was no guarantee that oscar was going to take me with this project so it was exciting mm-hmm. um, to lift our relationship into something new as as collaborators and colleagues yeah
0: and you know that brings up brings up another interesting question to me that, um, you're wearing kind of in 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 this job and in other jobs you've been wearing kind of different hats doing directing and then also kind of um, acting in other functions as an artistic director and and that's something I think a lot of people grapple with is as they make their way up the kind of leadership chain of one kind or another maybe it takes them away um, from what they love doing Mm. best like I'm reading a biography of George Lucas right now and Mm. and he was kind of a natural gifted director and couldn't even stand directing just because of all the things (laughs) that came with it and so you know what's the essence of what you love doing artistically or otherwise and and how do you balance those different things
3: that's a good question because actually i i am a director that is my practice and being a producer there's something very powerful about getting to put your money where your mouth is Mm -hmm. and say um this this matters Mm -hmm. and we're going to support it Mm -hmm. so um my you know when you're freelance you are you also say this matters but you're sort of peddling your wares Mm -hmm. and um being part of a of a theater company no matter what the size is and i felt this way when i was um, the artistic director at crowded fire theater in san francisco is that is that you curate a body of work uh-huh. that is doing something in this world uh-huh. and it's uh, it's it's powerful it's exciting it's very scary uh-huh. and exhilarating um as a director it's Profoundly vulnerable to be in the room, and that feels important. Mm-hmm. Um, that that, um, and not all artistic directors are directors. Some are, are strictly producers. But for those of us who are also directors, um, that that you are practicing the art that you are. Um, that you are also sort of deeply engaging with artists in the room, both from your community or who you're bringing in from outside of your community, that you're all sort of rolling your sleeves up and and creating the work together Uh is very meaningful. Uh Um, I'm also really ambitious inside my own work and and it feels important to kind of... um, Push forward conversations both with artists, audiences, um, and and sort of engage um, in some ways take like the discourse that we have off stage and put it on stage mm-hmm. in ways that are fully lived and embodied and exhilarating on stage, um, and that sort of pushes the conversation and the art forward. Mm-hmm. And then as the producer side is, um, it's fun and it's hard mm-hmm. um, in different ways. Yeah, it takes. Uh, a, a, Everyone is different. Everyone approaches producing a little bit differently. But for myself, coming up through the indie theater scene, Mm -hmm. there's a kind of just go do it thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you sort of dream up and you start scheming about, ooh, this new program or what if we did this or what if we aligned ourselves with this, you better be ready to just go do it Mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's important um, to, to be able to get in there. And not just have the conversations, but really then pursue the execution um, wholeheartedly.
0: Yeah, yeah, you bet. You bet. Well, I'd like to ask you about the armory itself. Uh, I wondered, uh, what's your impression of just kind of your or your first impression or your, you know, your impressions as they emerge after that of just kind of the whole building inside and out?
3: When I first walked into the armory was actually on my final round interview oh. um, because, you know, you can kind of admire and study something from afar for many years, but I hadn't actually been inside. And I I was um, completely floored when I walked in and immediately my whole sort of body uh, – looked upwards, you know, that it really draws your eye up. Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which it, for me, and I think the GBD architects and all of the um, incredible team, the staff and donors who built that space had such a vision for, you um, expansiveness light-filled airiness that Mm -hmm. feels really inspiring you know literally like um the the inspiration to inhale um that you sort of you I feel the kind of opening when I walk into that space um and that's thrilling because I've also done theater in really crappy spaces (laughs) and that's Cool in and of itself, yeah. and, but it's hard. You know, it's um, it can be hard. It can be a little demoralizing. Mm-hmm. Um, in in some of the early um, theaters I was working in, you know, we were bleaching the sidewalks before the show because it was <laughs> it was disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a joy to get to walk into a building that um, that is both gorgeous and also uh, living a full life yeah. right there in the Pearl District. You yeah. know that there's passers by. Um, I'm also really interested in the history. I I am a deep believer in uh, sort of the ghosts of theater past. Uh And I feel like, or or sort of the ghosts that a space... Holds, You know, particularly because we're in um, a, a medium that is so—that's um, that, sort of here and gone and mm-hmm. here and gone. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yet there's—I I do feel there's the residue of every show that's ever been in that space. And mm-hmm. then when you've got a history that is complicated, mm-hmm. like the Armory, mm-hmm. you've got a lot just— embedded into those yeah. stones, you yeah, know, into yeah. the structure itself. And I, you can feel that, I think, when you walk in. I'm also interested in spaces that, and coming from the San Francisco Bay Area, there's mm-hmm. a lot of spaces like this, that were built for military activities mm-hmm. um, and have now found a greater and bolder purpose uh, in the arts.
0: Yeah, like the Presidio.
3: That's right, in the Presidio and at Fort Mason. Mm-hmm. Um, and those spaces are also like, you know, s- situated... Uh, uh, sort of, you know, right on the brink of the city, like right on the water in ways that are so beautiful and breathtaking and Mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love that the arts can come in and fill spaces. Yeah,
0: yeah. And it makes me think about the kind of relationship that has always, in a a broader sense, existed between... the the kind of violence of history and the drama that that inspires of course there's even that orson Welles quote in the movie the third man about how uh renaissance italy had all this you know civil war and fighting and they produced michelangelo and and the swiss had you know 500 years of peace and harmony, and they produced the cuckoo clock.
3: <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I also think, you know, I have um, so much more reading and research to do myself, but I am very interested in kind of excavating um, the armory's past mm-hmm. and thinking mm-hmm. about that and thinking about that for future commissions and opportunities for digging into that um, and, and, and really kind of going towards the complicated sort of um violent and racist past that Mm -hmm. it lived at one point Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um uh, that that feels important to acknowledge and to sort of um hold and look at Mm -hmm.
0: i i think i read somewhere that uh um After the armory was built, um, the first regiment that is mentioned in the name of the building um, participated in the Spanish American War Mm. and participated in the invasion of Manila. And Mm. that was one of the first military activities. And, and, you know, um, the Spanish American War, that's kind of one of the First obvious cases in history of yellow journalism and, mm-hmm. and selling a uh, uh, a war that didn't need to happen and mm-hmm. and you know years later we have the Gulf of Tonkin resolution and and we have now like uh, you know some supposed attack uh, on an American drone by the Iranians that conveniently right. um, helps make the case for going to war uh, uh, which can help save an unpopular president and all that stuff right. and so yeah I I'd l- I think there's a play in that
3: absolutely <laughs> I completely agree yes.
0: Um, so maybe that's a good way of segueing into asking you about the 2019 2020 season and, and your vision I, I guess for lack of a better term mm-hmm. as a and as an artistic director and I, I think I counted maybe 10 plays on the list right and uh, you know we've got maybe the most popular sort of uh, playmaker or playwright of our time in Lynn Manuel Miranda mm-hmm. and and his, uh, work the Heights. and we've got um, uh, I'm excited about this interpretation of Macbeth that mm-hmm. is on the docket uh, my partner um, has sort of successfully made me a big Shakespeare fan that oh, I wasn't uh, before that. And and so I'm excited in particular about um, new productions of Shakespeare that that find a new way to enliven the material or the cast list or anything like that. Yes. And so, um, you know, you've got Hedwig, Hedwig, as we talked about, and The Curious Incident of the Dog in Nighttime, mm-hmm. which maybe is more of a classic as a stage work than as a book now. Mm, and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is all kind of my long-winded way of asking you to just sort of tell yeah. us about the season. You know, anything you think is is worth telling, you know, how it came together or what you're excited about or anything like that.
3: Absolutely, yes. And thank you for uh, lifting those titles. Um, I I am so excited about this um, 1920 season. It's uh, an amazing moment of launching into the first season that I will have been able to put together with an incredible uh, team and staff. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that I was going for a really rich and diverse body of voices and aesthetics um, that has that wrestles with um, questions uh, that range from the personal to the political uh, in in pretty major ways. That mm-hmm. sort of uh, ask really urgent and relevant questions of our time um, and that each of those pieces feels um, really exciting, edge-of-our-seat kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me that looks like uh, a season filled with music, a f- season filled with humor, mm-hmm. and a season filled with energy. Um, I have said before that I would love for each play to feel like it's leaping off the stage into the audience's, mm-hmm. into their laps. Mm-hmm. Um one of the things that I feel, particularly this moment in history, this moment in time, it's really dark and it can feel um, there's a heaviness. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a heaviness in moving to- through the world. And so I feel like what an amazing opportunity for all performing arts organizations and particularly for as the flagship theater in town to get to – um, look at at ourselves at this moment on stage in many different forms, in ways that feel um, rich and uplifting, mm-hmm. um, and and real mm-hmm. and important. Um, and uh, to do that, I, I think with the balance of of musicals, so having um, both Hedwig with iconic celebratory music, um, and in the Heights, mm-hmm. um, Lin Manuel's music, um, and Chiara Alegria-Judes, um, together their their show is I, I think that it's um, the kind of piece that will have audiences six inches off the ground the mm. whole time. It's, mm. it's just so buoyant um, and also offering a visibility of a of a neighborhood on the brink of of being steamrolled mm-hmm. um, offering a sort of celebration of of a community coming together um, so so those musicals feel really relevant to me they feel lively um, and then to have a couple of classics also to have a macbeth that's a three-woman mm-hmm. macbeth mm-hmm. Um, directed by a wonderful local director adriana bear um again, it it feels very important to me when you're doing a classic to bring that lens of why this now? Uh And Macbeth to me feels a little like this is the story of how we got here uh-huh. as a society. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of, you know, in our American history and in even in, in recent history, there's a lot of, of violence and and power grabbing and um, and, uh, and greed. Um, and also, also, I love Lady Macbeth. Uh-huh. You know, like that. There's something about her that's just sort of like there's a ragefulness in her that I connect to. Uh-huh. I love that. Uh-huh. Um, and then, sort of. Um, the balance of that with new work, mm-hmm. um, with work that, uh, again, sort of as I mentioned before, I think these new works that we get to engage with here um, are the the canon of 21st century American classics. Mm-hmm. You know, that the, mm-hmm. they're the classics of tomorrow. Um, and we have, you know— Incredible playwrights like Lauren Yee with Cambodian rock band, who's looking at the Khmer Rouge, who's looking at genocide, who's looking at it in a deeply personal, family-based way, uh-huh. with humor uh-huh. and music. Uh-huh. It's uh-huh. it's exquisite. Similarly, Jocelyn Bio, um, Schoolgirls or the African Mean Girls play. It's it's positioned as a comedy. We're watching teenage girls in a Ghanaian boarding school compete for the Miss Ghana um, beauty pageant award, mm-hmm. uh, and we're laughing with them. We're with them. We're with them, and then we we slowly come to sort of really grapple with colorism, uh, with the girls' own sense of invisibility on the global stage, mm-hmm. and. And the play has welcomed us into its heart mm-hmm. um, all the way through, through laughter mm-hmm. um, and through this sort of keen pain of letting us into the girls' lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is sort of um, my journey, my roadmap through mm-hmm. the season was that everything should feel urgent and relevant, and also just grab us by the throat with. Um, with with a theatricality and a lift and a buoyancy. Something else that's really important to me has to do with um, visibility and with seeing ourselves on stage. If you're a person like me, I'm a white woman. If you've seen yourself on stage or 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 in visual art or in the movies or in television, if you regularly see yourself on stage, you know how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. You know, you 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 align yourself so directly with a character, and you get to experience a sort of catharsis of like the ups and downs of that character's journey. Mm-hmm. And so. Th- and And so then to make sure that as we think about Portland Center Stage at the Armory as a place for all people in our community to belong, Mm -hmm. um, where all people can feel that this is my theater, Mm -hmm. um, the question becomes, right, what are you putting on stage and whose stories are you telling? And so then when you come and it's a different story from your own, Mm -hmm. when you see people on stage who are different from you, what a gift to get to Mm -hmm. um, to – Uh, experience the world through that lens for those two hours
0: yeah yeah it reminds me of something that i remember roger ebert the film critic saying about movies that they were a a machine that creates empathy and i think Mm. of course the same is true um with the stage and and you were talking about um you know going back to looking at the origins of uh democracy and theater Mm -hmm. you think of like ancient greece for example which is supposed to be kind of the birthplace of of both and Mm -hmm. and we really kind of think of like Plato and say Medea or something mm-hmm. a, a, a hand in hand
3: mm-hmm. absolutely that's right it, it has ancient roots mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: yes well Marissa thank you so much for joining us uh, I really enjoyed talking with you and I'm, I'm kind of bummed that it's over but uh, um, uh, what do you say we grab a cup of coffee later that
3: sounds great thank you so much cool.
0: thanks again okay then Thanks a bunch to our guests, Stephen Domries and Craig Mendenhall of GBD Architects. And thanks as well to Marissa Wolf from Portland Center Stage for talking to us about the armory and its rebirth. As I was thinking about putting this episode together, I got excited delving into the history of this 1st Regiment Armory Annex and the mix of people who crossed paths there over the years. Soldiers, presidents, musicians, actors, brewery workers driving forklifts, but maybe since the architecture itself is so fortress-like, I find it more interesting, maybe because of that, to connect the armory with its immediate contemporary surroundings. This isn't an isolated castle, after all, but an urban building that's part of a transformed neighborhood. For much of its history, the armory was part of an industrial area, north of Burnside Street, that included the massive Blitz-Weinhart brewery and a lot of warehouses and repair shops and light industrial spaces. But In a cycle that's repeated itself in big cities all over the world, that central city industrial land was destined to change. And today, as we've discussed, this is the Pearl District, which in the 90s and 2000s became a focus of high-density condo building, all connected by the nation's first modern streetcar line, which came in 1997 and runs along 10th and 11th Avenues on both sides of the Armory. If you were to take a walk in the northern portion of the Pearl District, about 10 blocks away from here at the Armory, It's almost entirely new, and it feels that way. The buildings are pushing about 10 stories and beyond, and and even I sometimes kind of almost get lost wondering where I am with no real frame of reference. But if you're here in the southern Pearl District near Burnside Street, where the armory is, you'll still find a mix of new and old buildings, and that's what makes this area special. It's part of the reason the streets are filled with locals and tourists alike on most days. Well, that and the fact that Powell's Books is across the street. I think of the Armory as being part of a small constellation of old buildings in this neighborhood that serve as a kind of anchor. There are more and more contemporary condos in varying degrees of architectural quality that have arrived here over the past 15 years in the Pearl. They have names like the Henry Condos, the Casey Condos, the Louisa Apartments, the Gregory Condominiums. I guess there's some rule that they all have to have somebody's first name. But even though those buildings are by far the biggest... It's the old structures that make this a place to be. The former car dealership and repair shops that became Powell's Books. The remaining Blitz-Weinhard brew house that was renovated into offices. And down the street, the headquarters for advertising giant Wyden and Kennedy that used to be a cold storage warehouse. Nearby is also the former Meyer and Frank department store warehouse that became the American headquarters for solar panel manufacturer Vestas. And then, of course, there's the armory itself, the greatest cities are places where the mark of many generations can still be felt in the built environment. Portland is too young a city to have real castles, of course, but the armory gives us a few turrets nonetheless. The armory certainly isn't the only building in the Pearl with layers of history, but I love the fact that here you can find such a rich core sample. This was the home base for some of the first American soldiers to ship out in World War I. And as we discussed before, it's also hosted a president whose face is carved on Mount Rushmore. I love mixing that history with the new era happening today, with the armory, the home of what is arguably our city's leading theater company. It's kind of fitting even, I think. For ultimately, of course, the violent dramas of history are indelibly connected to theater and to great art. One always inspires the other, and vice versa. Getting closer to the end of the show, and here's that free resource from our sponsor, Mutual Materials. It's the Home and Yard Idea Book, which is filled with more than 150 pages of project photos from homes and yards across the Pacific Northwest. You can download it from MutualMaterials.com. In Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks to our producers, Amalia Boyles and Ed Curtis. Thanks as well to my friends in the Washington, D.C. band Beauty Pill for providing the music for In Search of Portland. Their last album, Beauty Pill Describes Things as They Are, was named one of the top 50 albums of the year by both National Public Radio and Rolling Stone Magazine. Keep an eye out for their next album entitled Please Advise. And thanks as well to Nikolai Kruger for providing original artwork for each episode that you can find on our website. You can find all episodes of this podcast at xraypod.com